going to be over in the book of Luke today. You can turn over to Luke chapter 7 if you are using a old-fashioned physical Bible. If you are using a phone, you can turn over that way. If you're just going to look on the screen, you have that at your disposal as well. We're going to take a look at a story here today that no one invites Jesus to get involved with. Jesus has no seeming right to be involved with the situation. He's not related to the victim. He's not related to the people and the family. He just happens to stumble upon this situation. There's a lot of times, it says in the Word that he was moved with compassion. I looked back on some of my notes on this in previous years, and I just came away a little bit unsatisfied with some of the things, so I just was spending some extra time on this this week, and I wanted to, to get a little bit more out of this and see a little more what's going on with this particular story. Because I want to know, how does Jesus get involved? If simply having compassion for a situation would give us the license to get involved, how many of your people in your life would be healed? It seems like there's something more. It can't just be our compassion, but that's what the Word says. He was moved with compassion, and they stepped out to, to take care of this. So, we're going to take a look at this healing episode to understand some stuff. There's also something very interesting about this, and I don't know that I have a complete answer on this, but I'm going to throw it out to you here anyway, and maybe you can think on it some more. It says at the end of this that he presented them to his mother. And that came across to me as very odd. And we'll show you why that is as we get to that part of the, of the part. Now, last week we were finishing up Jairus and the woman. There are two things. with The part we didn't get to with, with this one I think is somewhat important. And so we'll kind of finish, we'll finish our review looking at this. The woman with the issue of blood had opportunity and time to build up her faith for what she needed so that when she came into the situation, there were situations that made it more complex. I remember a couple of weeks ago when we first started on this and we had Chenzo run around the sanctuary here. We all want to go with that short distance, but then we made him go around the long way and there were obstacles. We all expect there to be a short distance between us and our what we're praying for. But sometimes we find out there's other things. The woman here built up her faith when she came to her faith encounter. She was ready for it. Jairus did not have time to build up his faith. Jairus came upon the situation and his daughter is dying and in desperation he comes to Jesus. The woman with the issue of blood never needed Jesus to speak to her to overcome her obstacles. Jairus did. There's a lot of help that we gain when we build up our faith on the way instead of just expecting to have the faith that we need or to just go into a meeting and let Jesus just do it all. Now here's the thing that was, that was different about this meeting we didn't get to get into. This is the word slibosin. 
It's a form of the word that is used with the woman, the issue of blood, when it said that the disciple said, Master, the crowd throngs you. That word there for throng is the Greek word. It's actually soon thriboso, but it's a derivative of thribosin. What this word means is to come and to press about. And that's why they're using this, this particular word. The crowd is pressing against you. When this woman came to Jesus, her idea is, I can come to Jesus, just touch the hem of his garment. When she comes to Jesus, she finds out it's not quite that easy. There's a crowd of people around there, and i got to press through the people that are there. All these people, they don't know it, but they're making her way more difficult. When Jairus is bringing Jesus back, he's not aware that things are going to make his way more difficult. And we have the people who come and they bring the news. We have the woman who came and delayed Jesus. We have all these things that are coming against him and making it harder. And Jesus says to him, don't fear. And he spoke to him to help him out. There's a verse of scripture, I believe it's over in Mark. And how many remember this verse of scripture that says, narrow is the gate. That there's a, there's a, there's a way that we are to go. There's a, uh, I think I, I put it over here. I can actually read it for you. It's in, actually, it's in Matthew chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. He says, enter by the narrow gate. That word there for narrow is not our word that we were talking about here. It's a different word. It means to make narrow by obstacle, which is what a gate is. A gate basically makes an obstacle so that you have to go through the smaller opening. That's why we translate a gate. It's a good, uh, good word for it. But when it says um, that narrow is the gate and difficult is the way, that word there, difficult, is our word phlebosin which means it is made difficult. There are things that go along in your path that make the way difficult. Now, I want to read this passage to you one more time. It's in Mark chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, if you want to read it later on on your own. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it. Notice this, this part in the end, you may not have noticed this about this passage before. There are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. I want you to notice the difference between these two paths. One is wide, the other one is narrow. It's made narrow and it has a gate. It says in the last one that few find it. It does not say that about the first, which means there is really no difficulty in finding the wide way. Anyone will find it. It is the narrow way that needs to be found. And the most people don't find it because when things press against them, oh, let's go an easier way. How many of you think about doing that with traffic? How many want to go the way where all the traffic is? No, we want to find 
the easier way. So if it takes lo longer distance-wise, but I can get there shorter time-wise, let's go that way. Let's just let's just do that, and we'll just we'll get there, get there better. We're always looking for the easier way. But he says, don't look for the easier way. When your faith is set on a direction, stay on that direction. The woman with the issue of blood set her faith in a direction, and despite the obstacles, her faith was built up enough over the course of this time and the things that she did, and we went over some of those, that when they pressed against her, she did not flinch. She stayed with it. Jairus didn't have that kind of time to build up his faith. He came on out, and Jesus spoke to him to keep him on. He had to receive it. All right, let's go back over here to our, our passage for today. Not a whole lot of verses here. And this is the only place where this miracle is recorded. The other Gospels don't carry it. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Now it happened the day after. Now this is the day after. If you went back into to one previous here, this is the centurion, the story with the centurion. It's the day after that. All these miracles we've been looking at here, they're right around the same time frame. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. Now you may have never pictured this with this story when you read it before, but I want you to get this picture in your head. Jesus is coming with a large crowd. The funeral is coming with a large crowd and they converge. Now you have two large crowds all mixed together. Apparently going in different directions. If they were going in the same direction, they may never have stumbled upon each other. Somehow they're crisscrossing. They're coming into each other and they're, they're kind of mixing in there. No traffic lights, no stop signs. Just plow on through and remember the direction that you're going. And as they clash as they come together and have you ever been into a mall that was way back when they used to be crowded and you have people from this direction and then people from this direction and you're trying to get through here and if it's a large crowd it can be a little bit difficult to, to get through that and you're kind of running into some people this is what's going on here and Jesus, as the two crowds are mixing, Jesus is seeing what's in the big crowd that's coming the other way. And he notices there's a coffin. He notices that there's a widow. He probably notices he's looking around that there's no husband. She doesn't carry a sign that says, I'm a widow. He's probably figuring from here, well, there's no husband in there. It's just her. It would seem that the husband is gone. So he may be putting all this stuff together or maybe the Spirit of God just revealed it to him. I don't know. And he sees the coffin. They were near the gate of the city. Now what happens at the gate? The gate becomes narrow because the gate narrows. So these folks are coming out of the city. He is going into the city. It says he's going into the city called Nain. They're coming out of the city. They're going into the city. And they're clashing. So they had a large crowd there. 
That crowd was from the city that Jesus is going into. So that's the setting. That's what we have here. Now, we don't know who the large crowd is, but you can kind of imagine if it's a funeral, that large crowd is probably some relatives, probably some people that cared about her, probably some people that cared about him. Maybe they cared about both. Now, what's missing in this story is we are never told how he died. Apparently, that's not important. We don't know if he was sick and died. We don't know if he was working and got injured or if he got hurt some other way. Maybe he got ran over by a camel. We just don't know. It's not told what happened. But what you can tell is he was a young man. It says here, let me find out where the... Did we hit that part there? It says in verse 12 that he was a dead man. I want you to tell you, tell you this about the Greek. The Greek does not say that he was a man. It says they carried out a dead. Now, why did they put man in there? Oh, that's simple. Because later on the passage identifies him, first of all, as a son. Well, that would make him a man. And then later on, we're going to have a word that is used that tells us that he was a man under 40. So what they did was they jumped ahead, saw those things, and put it in this part here so that you would understand it. It was perfectly fine to do that. There's, I'm not picking on them for doing that. not saying they shouldn't have done No, that's perfectly fine. Then when we read this, we see that there, there was a dead man. But if you have a, one of those Bibles that italicizes things that are inserted, and if you saw that particular word was inserted, and you might wonder, why is it man inserted? That's why. It's not here. It's just a couple verses later. It identifies him as a man and a young man. We also know that he was not a child. We know that he was a young man because of the Greek words that were used. So that's why they put in here that a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. Now, what we know from this is that, first off, he's been dead a little while. We got a coffin. He's been prepared for burial. We've got the whole uh, setup done. I don't know how long it took them to do their funerals. Uh, apparently, from the last story, it didn't take very long. She could die, and then we already got the mourners coming on in. But this man was very dead. He's been dead long enough that all the preparations are made. We got the burial. We know where we're going to bury him. All those things are done. Now, way back some time ago, some of you who've been around here for a while maybe remember, we, we did a series on the qualifications of being healed. There are three main qualifications. I'm going to give them to you. If you want to write them down, you can. If you just want to remember them, that's fine too. You can do whatever you want to with that. There are three main qualifications for people to be healed in the Word of God. First off, they must receive. You've got to receive the healing. That's big. You've got to receive the, the healing. Second, they have to be sick. If you're not sick, you can't be healed. And third, this is a big one. You needed to be present. Now, later on, Paul is going to be introducing prayer cloths. And no longer did they have to be present. But in Jesus' ministry, the people had to be present. When they did the prayer cloths, then the cloth had to be present with the person. There's a lot of times people, today we've fallen into this thing, well, let's just pray for them along the way. And, well, I don't know what's uh, happened with sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so, but I heard that they're sick. We're just going to pray that they get healed. Well, no one's present. There's no cloth present. What are you standing on? It's how easy you can fall into things. Just compassion. I feel compassion for them. I want to do them. I want to help them out. We've got to make sure 
we follow things in the Word of God. Let's go on to verse 13. This, this verse is, it is so easy to read over this verse and miss the beauty of this verse. I've pulled out several translations to help us with this. But you really don't need it all that much. Verse 17, verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Do not weep. Really, this is two words in the Greek. The New American Standard Bible translates it this way. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not go on weeping. And you can get all that from the two words in the Greek. Because of the way that they do their tenses and their, uh, so forth, you can get all of that out of those two words. It's not hard. It's actually a very good translation of it. Williams puts it this way. Stop weeping. He reads the whole thing. Now when the Lord saw her, his heart was moved with pity for her, so he said to her, Stop weeping. What he is saying and bringing out here is the weeping, the activity that you have been going on, knock it off. Quit it. Stop. That's Williams. Weiss puts it this way, And the Lord, having seen her, was moved with compassion for her and said to her, Stop weeping. Williams and Weist are two of the best on the Greek in the translations that they do. And they both put it this way. The reason they do it is because in the Greek, the action is past tense and continuous. So it has been going on for some time. He says, stop it. Young's literal, I'll read this one for you. I don't always go to Young's, uh, but I'll pull it out here for this one. Just you'll see the same thing. And the Lord, having seen her, was moved with compassion toward her and said to her, be not weeping. Now, if you look at some of the other translations, specifically the, the NIV, but the New Living translates it this way too, and there's about three or four other ones that I looked up and said this as well. In fact, when I was looking around for a bulletin cover on this verse, most of them render it this way, but it's terrible. It is an absolute atrocious translation for this verse. This is what it does. Stop crying. Don't cry. Stuff like that. Can you just think about this? If you got somebody who's upset, you know, a little kid's upset, they lost their toy, they popped their balloon, something like that, you're going over to that, but oh, they're there. Don't cry, right? Move with all kinds of compassion. Oh, don't cry. That is not what's going on here. That is not what Jesus is doing. And that translation kind of gets you like, idea because it says that Jesus moved with compassion. He's coming over. Oh, don't cry. It'll be all right. It'll be, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get through this. That's not what he's saying. It is such an incredible verse of scripture because what he's saying is this. He is moved with compassion for her. And he comes to her and he says, stop crying. Do not weep. Now, to get any further with this, i got to tell you what that word weep means. You ready for this? The Greek word weep, and I, I made the error, I left it in the Greek in your 
outline. I, that was my error on that. I meant to change that out, and I didn't do it. If you want to spell it out, it is K-L-A-I long O. Kleo. It means to warm, to, to mourn, weep, or lament. It is weeping as the sign of pain and grief for the thing signified. Very often this is uh, attributed to death. I looked up vines on this. And if you look up under vines, under the word weep, this is one of the words that you will see for it. And it is said it is used of any loud expression of grief, especially in mourning for the dead. If you looked up vines under bewail, it means to wail whether with tears or any external expression of grief. It is regularly translated weep. What he is saying here is, is this. This word doesn't mean crying. This word means that the person is in a state of mourning, sorrow, mourning a loss of something, generally someone who died, with the outward expression of crying, bewailing, some type of outward expression that signifies what is going on on the inside. So when Jesus comes up to her and says this, he does not say, oh, don't cry. He is not saying that. What he is saying is this, stop your mourning. That's what he's saying to her. You see, that just changes the meaning of a little bit. He is telling her, I want you to quit mourning. You've been mourning. Your son's dead. But I want you to knock it off. I want you to stop. It is a command. Jesus is giving her a command. Stop mourning. Now imagine this. Put yourself in this situation. You have gone to a funeral. Someone you know has lost someone important to them. And you are going to the funeral to support them. And you see the person who just lost their son, daughter, spouse, whoever it might be. And you come to them and there they are. They're weeping and they're seeing you come and they know that you are a close friend and they are so looking forward to you coming and they're they, they say, oh, so glad you came. And they come over to you. And it looks like they're going to give you a hug. And instead of you giving them a hug back, you say, knock off the morning. How would that be received? It's a good thing Jesus doesn't know her. Huh? How many would receive that really well? Probably not. That's what's going on in this situation. He is interrupting a funeral procession. They're going out to dig the hole or the hole's already dug and they're going to put the box in the hole. And he interrupts it. And his first words and his only words to her at this point are stop the weeping. Stop the mourning. Knock it off. Quit it. How many saw the cartoon? There was a whole lot of them, and I knew I had to go family circus on this one because uh, there just were so many. The one I really wanted, I couldn't fit into the bulletin. But this one is good. I don't know what PJ's crying about. 
Who knows what that is? The one that I really like, though? Oh, it was a little, I think it was PJ in there. And PJ is crying because his shoelaces are untied. And his mom comes to him and says, crying won't do anything about your shoelaces. How many moms have ever told that to their kids? Crying won't change your situation. And the next block over, PJ comes up to mom, Mama, you were wrong. Crying did get my shoelaces tied. Grandma did it. See, sometimes we think that crying is going to change our situation. Crying is not going to change this woman's situation at all. Jesus says stop. But he doesn't say stop crying. He says stop the mourning. Stop being sad. Stop expressing the grief that you have on the inside. This is a command here. It's a command to stop doing something that came natural. How many of y'all know mourning when someone you love has died is natural? This is very easy to do. This is her son. She's a widow. Don't have any more sons coming up. This is something that came natural. This is backed by her emotions, isn't it? How many of y'all know she's genuine? She is genuinely feeling what she is expressing. And what she is expressing comes from a place of love and compassion. But look at this. All those things are true, but it is against what Jesus wants to do. It is against what Jesus wants to see happen here. I think I left this in your outline for you, but just because your feelings are genuine doesn't mean they are helpful or viewed by God as good. Everybody wants to go on talk about how genuine they are. Well, I only express things that I am genuinely feel, that I genuinely are in, in the inside of me. That's garbage. Jesus is not telling her to express what is genuine. He's telling her, I want you to knock off what's genuine, and I want you to put this on. I want you to stop doing the morning thing. See a happy face. I put this in your outline for you. It may just be better to put on something that is right than to be genuine in what is wrong. Sometimes you ought to just put on what is right instead of trying to be genuine in what is wrong. The Word of God tells us in the New Testament, put on righteousness. Put on joy. All the things we're supposed to put on. You may not be genuinely feeling that right now, but put it on. Put on the whole armor of God. You may be genuine in your words, thoughts, and outward expressions, but God may be telling you to knock it off. Quit it. But you don't know that I, I'm really fearful about this. I know y'all. I know those are genuine things. Now stop it. She could have said, well, Jesus, I'm just not feeling that today. What I'm feeling is, is grief and sorrow, and I just need to express it. When we're instructed to, instructed to stop doing something, we often look for the evil in it to motivate us to stop. Isn't that right? If the Spirit of God came to you and said to you, I want you to stop drinking coffee. Now, after you get past the initial part of I get behind me, Satan. <laughs> if God was really dealing with you in that, you would begin the natural way, and a lot of people do this, the natural thing we do is to look at, all right, why is coffee evil? 
must be something evil about coffee. And we begin to look at this because I need motivation, right? Coffee's my friend. Not mine. You, I don't drink it. But um, I know people who do and really like it. You know, I wish I could like it because it'd be great to have a beverage you could just sit down and just for the purpose of sitting down and drinking something, I can't do that. You know, I thought eggnog. tried eggnog, you know, for that. Eggnog is great, but I just guzzle it. Now, I can't, you can sip coffee, not me. I can't, I can't sip it. Put that eggnog right there, right on down. Give me more. <laughs> Stuff is good. We don't have too many people to fight about it in our house. I think I've told you. Only two of us. But people, are, you're going to look for some motivation. Well, all right, what is evil? God is telling me about to stop mourning for this lady. Well, there must be something evil about mourning. But sometimes there's just no evil in what God is telling you to stop. He just wants you to stop. He just wants you to obey. That's it. Now, here's a problem that comes out. And this may help you to understand some false doctrine that has gotten out there. God may deal with you and say, stop drinking whatever it might be. Stop eating whatever it might be. And then you begin to go out there and look for the evil in the thing that God told you to stop. And if you look for something, you can find it. And you find something evil in that thing. And then you begin to go out there and to preach, everyone should stop drinking coffee. Coffee is evil. And you all need to quit drinking coffee. The Lord told me, stop drinking coffee. I asked him why. He showed me that all these things were wrong with coffee drinkers, with people who drink coffee, the bondage that is there from coffee, and therefore I have been free from it. You need to get free from it too. But see, Jesus never said here that mourning is wrong. He just told her to stop it. There are many times that people have gone out and God has told them legitimately, quit doing whatever. But they have taken it that it's not specific for me. It is revelation from God and I need to make sure that everyone stops doing this. So that may bring some clarity to some people who maybe have preached against something or talked to you about something or told you how you ought to stay away from this particular thing and you don't quite understand it or see the evil in it. That may, that's probably how it came about. So there's nothing wrong with mourning at a funeral. Jesus is not saying no one should ever mourn at a funeral. Anybody wants to come out of this story and say, all crying at funerals ought not be done. That's not what he's doing. Now look at this. He says to her, two words in the Greek, they do not weep. Do not be in mourning. That's what he says. That's all he says. He never announces what he's going to do. But he commands a natural expression of grief to stop. Never says what he's going to do. Wouldn't it be easier for the woman if Jesus would say, stop mourning. I'm going to raise him from the dead. Isn't that easier? How many of you were yet? If you were this woman, that would have been easy. But he didn't do that. He did not give her the end result. He gave her a command. Stop mourning. We have no other dis discourse between the woman and Jesus outside of that. But then Jesus begins to go about what he's going to do. How many of you believe that Jesus would go about what the Father told him to do, or the Father showed him to do, 
if the woman didn't obey. If she just kept on going there wailing and moaning and weeping and whatever else, if she just kept on going, would Jesus have gone on and done the rest of the story? Now, people will say that Jesus only raised three people from the dead. This is one of them. Girl we covered last time, Lazarus, is, he's down the road. That hasn't happened yet. There may have been others, but I do have to wonder, are there other funeral processions that Jesus interrupted and gave the same command who refused to listen? I don't know. But I know that there's a whole lot more that Jesus did than is in the Bible, because the Bible tells me that. So he doesn't announce what he's doing, but he asks her to quit. How good would you be at this? How good would you be at stopping your natural expression of the feelings that you have on the inside without a promise for a change that would be coming? That those things that cause those feelings on the inside of you would change. Now, I put this in your outline. You can get this one if you want. The expression won't fit with what was going to happen, only with what did happen. That expression of grief that she was having come out of her face, out of her voice, out of her eyes, the tears, that expression won't fit what was going to happen only with what did happen. There's a lot of times, folks, God wants to take us to something that's going to happen, but we're still hung up on what did happen. we got to get past what did happen to go on to what's going to happen. But you got to let go. That's what this woman had to do. She had to let go. Now, I know I didn't put this in your outline. But sometimes we may be called upon to move on from what did happen to what will happen before what will happen happens. Yeah. Yep, sometimes you're going to be called on to move on from what did happen to what will happen before what will happen happens. Just because God said, move on. Now here, I want you to make sure you get this one. The inroad for Jesus to change the situation is her hearing and obeying his command. That's the inroad. Because I can find absolutely nothing else that is there. I can find, I can show you other cases where Jesus had compassion and the end result never happened. The rich young ruler, did Jesus have compassion on him? And Jesus, having compassion for him, said, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor and come, follow me, and you will have riches in heaven. The man couldn't do it. And he went away sorrowful. But Jesus had compassion on him and gave him a command. The man didn't follow it. And he never saw the end result. Just because Jesus has compassion didn't, does not seem to be a way for him to be able to change it. He needs something. She heard what he said and she obeyed his command. I don't see any scenario in which Jesus 
does what he plans to do without her obeying what he said. Now, the power is not in her denying the circumstances. Some people will teach you that. Just deny that you have pain. Just deny that you feel sick. The power is not in her denying the circumstances. He's not saying, look, deny that you're mourning. Deny all that. No, he's not saying that. He just told her to stop. The power is not in her denying the circumstances, but in her obeying his commands. Because this is what we see in the Word of God. Constantly. When people obeyed, the thing that Jesus commanded, power came. Now, Jesus' compassion drew him to the situation. That's what brought him here. Jesus' command was his invitation into it. Here's the command. If you obey it, that's my invitation. Her obedience was his open door. See, just because you have an invitation does not mean you have an open door. But he got the open door when she obeyed her obedience. And now we can move on to the final part. Because really, this might be a little buried in here, but you can see it. They have a problem. There's a, there's a problem right here. What's the problem? <laughs> somebody is dead. We got a dead somebody. That's the problem. And Jesus came on the scene and we want to change this thing. But it, the one thing that's, that's not, doesn't happen here is it's not announced. Jesus does not announce his plan. J.R. is, he announced his plan. The woman, she announced her plan. Jesus doesn't announce the plan. But he's got a plan. Apparently, that plan is interrupt the funeral, give her a command. When she acts upon it, we move on to the next part. And this next part is going to throw you a little bit. Let's take a look at this. Verse 14. And he came and touched the open coffin when those who carried him stood still and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Now, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words in the English. Not so in the Greek. Four words. Neniske, soy, lego, Four words. Basically, he doesn't even say it in the same way we do. He basically says it this way. Young man, to you, I say, arise. Young man, to you, I say, arise. Now, that word there, young man, is a Greek word that means a youth under 40. He also has that he was called the weos, mature son. Not a technia, not a small child. He was a mature one, so that's how we narrow down that he was a young man. And this word here for arise is the Greek word egero. It's a derivative of it. And by derivative, it just means a different tense and form just changes the ending on it. And all the healings that we looked at so far, the one with the proclamation, the one who made the proclamation is the one who has an attachment to the situation. Let's just take a look at this. We're going to go in backwards order from all the ones we looked at. Jairus, he had the declaration about his daughter. It was his daughter. The woman, 
she had the declaration about her body and the condition that she had and how she was going to have be healed. It was her body. The rooftop, it was his friends. Maybe some relatives were in there, but they were connected. The centurion, he made the proclamation about his servant. The leprous man, he made the proclamation about his condition. The man with the unclean spirit, it was his condition. Peter's mother-in-law, it was her condition. The lame man at Bethesda, his own self and condition. These each did or said something proclaiming. They not all said something, but they either did or they said something that proclaimed their faith. Here, it's very different. Because the dead man doesn't say anything and neither does the widow. There is no proclamation from either of those. The one who makes the proclamation is the one who has no attachment to the situation. How does he do that? We have Jesus, he intervenes, he makes the proclamation, and he takes the action. That's all we want, right? That's all we all want. I just want Jesus to come in, take over the situation, and in the end result, I come out healed. That's all I want. Let Jesus do all the believing, let Jesus do all the acting, and that's how a lot of people pray. They're expecting Jesus to do all the believing, all the proclamation. They're gonna, he's gonna do all the changing. That's how we want. So did Jesus just pick up an attachment to the situation with the widow and the son he never met? He never met him before, as far as we can tell from Scripture. Now it seemed that the compassion that moved Jesus gave him an attachment to the situation. But if that's the case, how many of you can be attached to a lot more situations? If mere compassion gives us the right to intervene, How many people that you know would be healed right now? Let's go on to verse 15. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak and he presented him to his mother. He who was dead, he was dead. There was no doubt he was dead, but now he's not. And he sat up. I'm kind of glad he sat up first. But he sits up and people can see something's going on on here. Something is happening. So he sits up and then he, he speaks. He says something. Now when Jesus says this, his words, when he says to the, to the young man, I say to you, arise, that word there for say in the Greek is the Greek word. You're all going to love this word. I may have gone over this word once or twice with you before, but you're going to love this word. This is going to become one of your favorite Greek words. It is the Greek word lego. What's that sound like? Legos. What happens in the middle of the night when you are walking on the, and you step on a lego? What happens? You speak. <laughs> you say something. Yes, words come out of your mouth. See, those are some of the things we would use to, to remember some of the, the things in Greek. And uh, like balo. Balo means to throw. How do you remember that? Ball. Yeah, you do stuff like that to, to help you remember. And still haven't forgotten a lot of those things. But lego is to, is to speak. Young man, I speak. I say to you, arise. 
And look what happened. So he who was dead sat up. How did, did Jairus' daughter rise up? Jesus took her by the hand. He doesn't take this guy by the hand. I say to you, arise. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak. We don't know what he said. He may just have been saying stuff, where am I? Because a little while ago, he was someplace else. Now he's been all dressed up and all kinds of stuff put on him. And he's being carried out of the city in a box. What's going on? I mean, we can kind of imagine some of the words that might come out of his mouth. Especially since we don't know how he died. Did he die suddenly? Was it a slow process to get to that point? Was he expecting to die? We don't know. But he began to speak. Apparently his words were not important, but Jesus' words. Those are the words that were the most important. So he who is dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Now this is puzzling to me. He presented him. That word there presented means to give to. When did Jesus take possession of the man? I don't know when Jesus took possession of the man. This word presented is from the Greek word didomai. It is used 413 times in the New Testament. That's a pretty common word. It means to give. But it's been used in verses. I'm going to read one verse for you, but I read a whole mess of them. I did not read all 413. But I did read a whole mess of them. Here's one you're real familiar with this one. Matthew 4 and verse 9. And he said to him, All these things, this is the devil speaking to Jesus, All these things I will give you. That is, didomai. If you fall down and worship me. In all the instances I looked at, when this word is used, it is used of someone who gave something they had. That's why this kind of struck me as funny. Why is Jesus presenting the man to his mom? He never belonged to Jesus. Hmm. Well, there's a similar situation in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 32. You can just listen or read along, whichever you want to do. When Elisha came into the house, there was a child lying dead on his bed. And he went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child. And the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. And the child sneezed seven times. And the child opened his eyes and he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. So he called her and when she came in to him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. The word there translated picked up. That is in the Hebrew. It is not in the Greek. But I looked up in a couple of different translations and such ones like the Amplified and the Bible in basic English will read this way, take up your son. But the word here that is translated pick up or take up in those other translations has a lot of meanings, including the meanings of accept and receive. 
What he's telling her is, accept and receive your son. Now when we get to Jesus raising Lazarus, there's no presenting him to the sisters. He doesn't present them to the sisters. He presents them to the mom. Elisha presents them to the mom. So now I'm curious. This is interesting. What is up with this presenting? Well, she lost her son. She lost her son to death. Now, when a husband and wife get married, what is it that causes the separation of that union? According to the Bible, not according to society. According to the Bible, what is it that causes the end of that union? Death. So what the Bible teaches us very clearly is that in the covenant relationship of husband and wife, it ends at the death of one of those persons. Jesus has asked the question about the afterlife. Whose husband will she be? Because she had seven husbands. And Jesus says, you misunderstand the power of God and the kingdom of God. They are neither married nor given in marriage. Which means the institution of marriage is not going on in heaven. Okay, that's interesting. So when death from this life separates that union, I'm not saying you don't ever remember that you that there was a, a union there, and I'm not saying that you that, that you just this. I don't I don't know what kind of relationship is there, but there is no marriage relationship. However, there is nothing in the Word of God that says that a child is ever separated from the bond of the parent. In fact, I can make a case for it completely different. You were known from the beginning of when. For the foundation of the world, God knew you. Well, if God knew you, then God knew where you would live, who your parents would be, who your kids would be, what your calling would be. All those things he knew. He knew them before. He knew who you are going to be born to. You might be able to marry the wrong person, but you can't be born to the wrong person. Otherwise, God made a mistake. He doesn't make mistakes. That union, that covenant relationship between the parent and the children is eternal. Marriage is not. It ends at death. So when this death took the son, did the son stop being the son? No. He's still the son. But death took him from this life and from the life where the widow was. In essence, what Jesus does is he goes and takes him back from the state of death, brings him back into the living, and then restores him back to his mom. Now, the only time that we don't see this is in the story we looked at last time when Jesus and uh, raised a little girl. But the parents were right there in the, in the same room. So that may be why the whole presentation didn't go. He took him from the coffin, came and presented him to the mom. Elisha presented the one who was dead, the son that was dead, to his mom. I thought that was interesting. Jesus knows what's going on here. He knows we had to go back and pull this one out of death 
and bring them back. And that bond that was there is now restored. There's still going to be a bond in the next life. So if you ever wonder about, about that with your kids, currently, in the next life, they're still going to be your kids. Parents are still going to be your parents. Verse 16. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God, visit, God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Now they saw a great prophet. They see this as, oh, look at this, this Jesus. He is a great prophet. Not the Son of God, but a great prophet has risen up among us. They say this because they saw what he did. I put this in your outline for you. It was works, not wisdom, they valued. It was because of the works that Jesus did that they saw him as a great prophet, not because of the wisdom he spoke. Which one impresses Jesus? When you see it because of the wisdom from the words, not the works. Evil and adulterous generation looks for the works and the signs. But his disciples were able to go beyond that. Now guess what word they use for risen here? A great prophet has risen up. There's a number of different words they could use for risen. Guess which one they use? Egero. Which means... Well, it's the same one that Jesus used. When Jesus spoke those words, young man, to you I say, Egero, arise. They used the exact same word that Jesus used speaking to the coffin. There are other words they could have used, but they used the exact same word that Jesus did. Prophet has it. He said, he called this one up to rise from the dead. They're saying that one arose in their midst. They arose. But this is what Jesus did. He, he looked for an opportunity. He gave the woman an opportunity. Here you go. I want you to let go of the past. Let go of the past. Let go of what has happened. And I want you just for... I, he's not even asking her to do this for long. But right now, I need you to quit the morning. And she did. So that Jesus could keep on going. And then Jesus gets to the coffin and he utters four words. How many of you, if you were praying over the coffin with a dead man inside, your prayer would have been longer than four words? Even seven in the English. How many would have had longer prayer? Come on, you could have gone on for at least a good ten minutes, right? The longer the prayer, you know, the more time God has to move. But he does it in four words. And he speaks to that coffin. He doesn't even touch them. And the guy just sits up. Why? Because live people don't sit in coffins. They get out. He got out. I gave them the opportunity. There's a lot of times we are looking to help people that are around us. And we are moved with compassion. Many times you walk through the Walmart and you are moved with compassion for people that are there. Sometimes you're you're in the grocery store and you are moved with compassion because of someone you never met before and you're thinking, well, I don't have any right to step into that. Jesus did not know any of these people and yet he stepped in to raise the dead. Well, that's Jesus. You know. What if you 
sat back and listened. God, what is it that we can do in this situation? And God says, say this to them. Because we know that's how Jesus did it, right? Because he doesn't say anything that the Father didn't say. He doesn't do anything that the Father didn't do, show him. As far as we can tell, this was not a premeditated thing by Jesus. He looked upon her and then had compassion. He didn't have compassion when he was in the city. He had the compassion when they came together and he saw what was going on. That's when the compassion came. And he goes over and he speaks these words to her. And her obedience to that gave him the opportunity to go up into the coffin where the coffin was. The Word of God tells us that once he gets up there and all this happens, people stop and stop moving. What in the world are you going to do? You ever read the episode of Smith Wigglesworth? You heard he's interrupted many a funeral, much more funerals than Jesus interrupted. One I remember, remember the most is when he showed up at a funeral, and the funeral was going on, and the people saw him come in the room and said, Smith, you're here too late. And he says, God never sends me anywhere too late. And he goes up to the coffin, and he grabs the guy out of the coffin, and he slams him up against the wall. And he says, live in the name of Jesus. I believe that's how he, he said it. So I believe he had to do it a couple of, number of times. Slam him up against the wall. How many have that kind of confidence messing with a funeral like that? Slam him up against the wall. He's still dead. Slam him up against the wall. Slam him up against the wall. Live. And finally, he blinked his eyes and he looked at him and goes, Smith. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, that is something else. That is, uh... <laughs> but that's basically what Jesus is doing here. He's just not slamming them up against the wall. It is not enough for us to be moved with compassion and plead with God to do something. When we are moved in with compassion, that gets our attention. Now we've got to get our ears going. What is it that we can do in this situation that will bring about a change? You've got to listen to your spirit on it. And the spirit of God will come up on the inside of you if, if that situation is there where God can... There may not be an open, an open door. Just because he doesn't spit, say anything to you doesn't mean you're not able to hear or that you missed it. Maybe there was nothing to do in that one. I'm sure if we get to heaven, all the years that Jesus was alive, he'd probably walk past a few funerals and didn't do anything. But this one he changed. Listen to God. It's going to take some boldness for you to step on out there and to say some things. But just understand this. You may tell them, you may hear from God, and God may say, speak this to them, and you may speak that to them, and they may say, I'm not doing that. And they just close the door. Just close the door. That invitation is just the Lord knocking. He's knocking at the door. Let's see if anybody wants to answer. More seems to be needed than just compassion to open the door to divine healing. There needs to be some openness of the Spirit to receive from God. they got to be open to receive from God. And they got to know it came from God. That's one of the things we went through before, seeing that you had to be present. They had to know this was God. You can't just pray for uncle so-and-so to get healed of his whatever it is that he's got. Somewhere... Out of there, oh, just wake up one day and oh, he's healed. No, he won't attribute that to God. 
But you walk into the room, lay hands on them, and say, in the name of Jesus. That's different. God will get the glory. Make sure that you pursue it in a way that he's going to. Now, obedience to God's command is one way. It is not the only way, but it is one way that we can do this. one way that we can see this. Often we pray for others to receive because we have compassion for them, but they are not willing to receive from God. If they're not willing to receive from God, folks, no matter how much compassion you have for them, you can't change it. Peter and John had the lame man at the gate. They got him ready to receive. It could have just been their compassion that drew him to the man. That's in Acts chapter 3. Remember when Paul was preaching a sermon and the man fell out from the window and died? That's in Acts chapter 20, 7 through verse 12. And he goes on down there and lays hands on him and says his life is in him. Let's go back up and finish the meeting. And he goes back up and he talks for a long time, the Word of God says. And then at the end of that, we find out, oh, by the way, he got up and, and uh, came in the house. But there was an act that was going on there. I'm sure it was the compassion that took Paul down to the ground floor where the man, dead man is. You fall three stories, you're going to have uh, some marks on your body. He comes on down there and prays on, on him and he says, all right, his life's in him. Let's go back up. Now, if you're in the meeting and Paul just says, well, let's go back up and you're leaving him there? How many of you feel a little funny about that? But see, there's the obedience. He had what God told him to do. They went up, they had the meeting and afterwards, he was alive. Don't stop at compassion and expect miraculous results. Compassion alone does not bring miraculous results. There's some kind of obedience. There's some kind of open door that God is looking for. The question is not, does God want to do something here? Because you can always find a yes answer to that, can't you? Does God want to heal this person? Well, of course He does. The question should be, is there a door we can point out for God's power to move through. Is there a door that we can point out for God's power to move through? That's what we got to find out. Often, we try to be the one that opens it. You can't be the one that opens the door. The person receiving has to be the one that opens the door. Our role is to point it out. That's your role. And let those in position open it. That means they're ready to receive nothing wrong with having compassion but don't get lost in the fact that compassion can overcome everything there's many times in the Old Testament God had compassion on the people of Israel but their disobedience caused him to not be able to do things there are people that you know today that need a touch from God your compassion is reaching out to them but they have not opened the door for God to minister to them you can go to God and say God what is it that I can say what are the words that I can speak? Don't be praying for somebody else. You can pray that too, but God, I'm ready. If you have compassion for that person, pray. God, show me what I can do. What can I say? What, can I, what open door can I point them to? Jesus pointed people to open doors. They didn't always take it. You can point people to some open doors. They may not take it. But your compassion by itself is not enough to get it done. Don't be ruled by your feelings. 
Don't be ruled by your compassion. Make sure you stay with what the Word of God says. Would you all stand up with me? Well, Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the things that you teach us, that there are situations that Jesus came in just like we do, where suddenly compassion took hold of him. But he knew compassion is not enough. There needs to be an open door. And what he may have done seemed, may have seemed harm, harmful, harm, harsh even to, to people around him. But he knew in the end this is going to be better. Help us, Father, to let go of what has caused our feelings to rise up from things in the past. Help us to let them go and not be held down by them. There are times you will speak to us to let go of the past so that we can see the future. I thank you for the help that you give us on this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, glory to God. I hope you got something out of this, this story here on this one. We have a um, teaching coming out for you tomorrow. In fact, it's up on the uh, YouTube channel now if you want to go up there and take a look at it. But Joyce Meyer is teaching on overcoming your feelings. And she's uh, uh, Joyce is, is not necessarily a teacher. She is someone who will take the principles of the Word of God and show you how to apply them into your situations that you live in, your real-life situations. And she does a great job of it. And she's very frank. She's very blunt. I love that about her. I mean, she has no trouble slapping you upside the face. I, I think I love teachers like that. I love teachers who just slap me in the face and, and wake me up to some things. So I hope you enjoyed it. It's a longer one. There is no video on it, though. I looked all over. Could not find the video. All there is is audio. So I um, hope you can still find a way to enjoy that. But that is coming for you. Uh, you'll get it in all the normal ways that are coming out uh, Monday at 10 o'clock, as usual. But if you want to go up there to the YouTube channel, it is there for you now. On Wednesday, we are taking on one of those chapters that most people skip past when they are doing a read through the Bible. It is not quite genealogies, but it is everybody who came and is involved in the building of Jerusalem. We get all their names and what they did and so forth. And what in the world is all that doing in the Bible and does it have any relevance to my life? We aim to take that on on this Wednesday. So I hope you will get to uh, join us. If you can't be out here in the service, then you can certainly uh, join us online. We're on YouTube and Facebook, just those two places. We don't put it on the sermon.net on the, on the Wednesdays, just the Sundays we put it on there for that one. But have a great rest of your day. Bless some of the people that are around you. You all got an invitation on some things. We're looking.